From KUOW, this is Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman. We just heard how scientists in the North Cascades are using roadkill to draw out and study the elusive wolverine. Well, it turns out that the North Cascades and the neighboring Metau Valley are a bit of a roadkill hotbed, so much so that a kind of roadside ecosystem has developed. And that's happened because of the way major highways and byways have profoundly changed our natural world. The study of those impacts is called road ecology. Earlier this year, I caught up with the author Ben Goldfarb about his book Crossings, how road ecology is shaping the future of our planet. And Ben told me that roads have always been a problem for wildlife. It's interesting, you know, you can, you can go back to the, the 19th century and, you know, Thoreau writes about turtles getting crushed by wagons. So, you know, this this concern about wildlife and transportation goes back a long way. But, you know, the first true roadkill studies took place in the 1920s. You know, roadkill, the term didn't exist at that point. That was just coined in the 1940s. Uh, but, you know, as, as cars kind of entered American society, you know, there's sort of two parallel tracks of concern. You know, there are all of these sort of urban reformers who are really worried about the impact of cars in in city neighborhoods. Uh, you know, they're killing people. They're sort of chasing pedestrians uh, out of out of urban areas, taking over streets, dominating parking, and you know that concern about the impacts of roads on humans kind of bleeds over into nature. and And in the nineteen twenties, there are a number of early biologists who begin to quantify roadkill. All of the garter snakes and woodpeckers and ground squirrels who are suddenly being killed by this, this kind of fearsome new technology, uh, the, the automobile. And uh, that's really where the science of road ecology begins, even if the term itself wasn't coined in English until the, the 1990s. You know, this, this angst about roads and cars' impacts on nature really goes back a century. And I think it's interesting that we didn't start looking hard at roadkill until things like deer were actually posing a risk to people, right? Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, that, and that really starts happening in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, you know, and it's, it's funny to go back and look at the, you know, the early roadkill studies that were done in the, in the 1920s because none of them ever mentioned deer, uh, which you know, we think of as sort of the prototypical roadkill animal. Uh, and yet in the 1920s, you know, deer populations were still recovering after, you know, many centuries of, of hunting uh, all over the all over North America. But, you know, by the 1950s and 60s, you know, deer populations have largely recovered, you know, both white-tailed deer in the east and, you know, mule deer in the west. Uh, and thanks in part to the rise of suburbs, which, you know, cars are helping to facilitate, uh, you know, suburbs are fantastic deer habitat, all of these, you know, these great ornamental plants and backyards for them to hang out in. Uh, and, you know, there's this kind of this sudden tension between the rise of white-tailed deer uh, and mule deer and, you know, this this new interstate highway system. You know, people are driving farther and faster than ever before on these giant new roads that are built during the 1960s. And suddenly there's the explosive growth of, you know, this large dangerous animal that sometimes kills people when they hit them in their cars. So, you know, it's funny that road ecology sort of began as this discipline that was primarily concerned about cars impacts on wildlife, but as deer populations grow, you know, it kind of reverses so that suddenly, you know, a, a lot of biologists are concerned about wildlife's impacts on cars. And, and that's still true to this day. And I mean, the methods that we tried to keep the deer away, fences, other deterrents, they didn't really work, right? I mean, what had to happen was the deer's behavior had to change just because of the proliferation of 
roads. Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny to go back and look at, you know, sort of many early failed ventures to keep deer and and motorists from uh, crossing paths. And, you know, the, the sort of the classic example of that is the deer crossing sign, right? That classic, uh, you know, yellow diamond with the the black buck, you know, leaping across it. And, uh, you know, and, and those, those signs, you know, those also go back to the fifties and sixties and, you know, those are, those are largely ineffective. You know, there's lots of research showing that, that, uh, you know, those sorts of deer Xing signs, uh, are just kind of something that, you know, transportation departments do because they don't have really, uh, you know, many better ideas or at least less expensive ideas or because, you know, of course the sign is a very cheap intervention. I was shocked to find out that Washington's Metow Valley is one of the national centers for the volume of roadkill. Tell me about what you learned there. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting kind of classic road ecology conflict in some ways. You know, you have a, you know, you have a, a community that sort of winds along a river and you've got a highway, Highway 20, that parallels that river. And, you know, you've got both mule deer and whitetail deer, you know, kind of both resident in the Metau Valley and migrating through it, uh, you know, crossing that that highway that uh, you know is is trafficked by both people who live in the valley and, and also you know lots of visiting uh, Seattleites and other other tourists as well. So yeah, Highway 20 has this kind of notorious roadkill raid, and you know certainly when I I spend a lot of time driving around there working on this book, and and it's uh, it's just unmistakable. You know, at, at, in the evening, uh, you know, you get. Uh, you know, bald eagles and golden eagles and ravens that just kind of sit up on the hillsides next to, you know, common deer vehicle collision hotspots, knowing that, you know, sooner or later, there's going to be uh, a carcass uh, available for them to scavenge. So, it, you know, it's a, it's a really big problem there. And, you know, and certainly that, that area also illustrates, you know, the danger of, of deer collisions to humans as well. You know, there have there have been fatalities in the Metau Valley due to, you know, vehicle deer collisions. And, you know, that's a that's a common problem. I mean, something be, some, somewhere between two and four hundred people in the United States are killed uh, in deer collisions every year. You know, those large animal crashes cost society more than eight billion dollars in hospital bills and vehicle repairs and insurance costs. So, you know, certainly those those uh, those DVCs, as the uh, the kind of ecological jargon goes, the deer vehicle collisions are uh, a huge uh, both ecological problem and also a, a big public safety risk. And the Metau is definitely illustrative of that. Did you end up salvaging any roadkill while you were in the Metau Valley? <laughs> no, you know, I, I tried. I went out with a friend. You know, there is a a, a big culture there of roadkill salvage, you know, uh, in part because Highway 20 is not, it's not like a, you know, a giant 70 mile an hour interstate, you know, where 18 wheelers are barreling down the freeway, just obliterating animals. You know, most of the, the deer that are killed there get killed by Subarus from Seattle going 50 miles an hour. Uh, so, you know, the, the meat is, uh, is, is salvageable and that's, you know, that's, that's been legal in Washington state for, uh, for several years now. And there are lots of people who, who take advantage of that resource. Uh, so no, I, I spent a, a couple of days driving around trying to get a carcass with a friend of mine who was a former hunting guide. And, and, uh, unfortunately, uh, well, maybe fortunately, we weren't able to to uh, get our hands on one, perhaps in part because there's so much competition. You know, an, an animal dies, and and uh, you know there are immediately uh, several residents who are ready to scoop up that carcass and and make good use of it. Let's turn to the Washington State culvert case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court because I think it illustrates so much about the effects of roads and the limits of the ways that we've tried to mitigate their damage. 
And this case has to do with Pacific Northwest salmon runs, which are in serious trouble. You know, habitat loss, climate change, it's all contributing. But what do roads specifically have to do with our salmon population? Right. You know, it's funny, we don't really think about salmon as being a, a road impacted species generally because they, you know, they're obviously aquatic and they don't always or often cross roads. Although there, you know, there is, uh, there are a couple of famous instances where salmon do end up crossing flooded roads during their migrations uh, in Washington every, every fall. Uh, but the culverts case is, you know, a really kind of fascinating landmark in the, in the history of road ecology. You know, the situation there basically is that, you know, all of these derelict road culverts, which are, you know, the, the, pipes that go under roads and, you know, funnel streams and wetlands and other water bodies beneath roads, you know, as those culverts age, uh, you know, they become increasingly dilapidated, they break down, you know, many were never built properly to begin with, they weren't big enough. And and often, you know, when you have a culvert that's broken or too small, it, it just concentrates the flow of the stream into a fire hose. And it basically, you know, blasts away any any fish who tries to uh, swim through it. Yeah, it's like uh, a super soaker. Exactly. It's like, yeah, exactly. It's like an infrastructural super soaker. That's a good, that's a good uh, analogy. Um, so, you know, when, when those fish are unable to swim through the culvert, you know, they lose access to all of those spawning grounds uh, above that that road. And, you know, certainly there have been many thousands of miles of, of uh, historic salmon spawning and rearing grounds in, in the Northwest that have been lost due to, you know, faulty road culverts or, or culverts that were kind of built too small from the get-go. So basically the culverts case, you know, as, as many listeners uh, un- undoubtedly know, was, you know, a, a number of tribes in, in Western Washington uh, sued the state and basically said, you know, by by not fixing your broken, lousy culverts, uh, you know, you are denying us the opportunity to practice our our treaty rights, you know, our rights to to fish in our usual and accustomed places. And, you know, as you say, that that case went all the way to the Supreme Court, which ultimately ruled that, uh, yeah, that was this, that was the state of Washington's responsibility to fix all of those culverts. And so now the state is engaged in this very long and ultimately very expensive uh, operation to, uh, you know, to fix all of these these culverts by 2030, or at least a, a very large number of them. But, you know, certainly that's that's the, the right thing to do, both from an ecological standpoint and a, a social justice standpoint for all of those tribes who have been denied access to the salmon that's that's rightfully theirs due to culverts. You know, on page 204, you wrote, quote, like the roads they underlaid culverts, I was learning were symbols as well as structures. In Washington, each humble pipe carried the weight of colonialism, civil disobedience and perseverance against deferred justice. And I really want to highlight this idea because this has to do with Native tribes long fight to save salmon and preserve their fishing rights in what ways do the culverts carry the weight of colonialism, civil disobedience and perseverance against deferred justice, Ben? Well, from a colonialism standpoint, you know, roads have always been, you know, kind of the the tools of colonization and conquest and empire, right? I mean, that's how, you know, state and federal governments have always kind of uh, extended their power uh, through places and, and uh, you know, and, and dominated both landscapes and and uh, and and native peoples so you know the from from a civil disobedience and environmental justice standpoint you know the the fight over culverts is really the 
continuation of a, of a struggle that has been ongoing since the 1960s, uh, you know, when the fish wars began and, and native fishermen attempted to exercise their rights by harvesting the fish that, you know, were, were again, rightfully theirs and, uh, you know, were faced the wrath of, of uh, both the state and white commercial and recreational fishermen. And, uh, you know, that led to all, all kinds of uh, decades of legal wrangling in the courts, uh, you know, which ultimately culminated in, in the Bolt decision, which is, you know, this landmark uh, ruling that acknowledge that the tribes had the right to catch, you know, half the total salmon. And, you know, the Culver case is really about sort of continuing that battle. You know, I mean, there's, there's, what is the point of having rights to fish if there are no fish, if culverts are denying salmon the ability to reproduce and causing populations to crash. So, you know, the culverts case, again, is, is part of this civil rights struggle that, uh, you know, that really dates back to the 1960s. And, you know, to me, it was really powerful to think that culverts, you know, the most mundane objects in the world, these little battered, you know, corrugated metal pipes, uh, which, you know, we drive over every single day without noticing, have all of this historic and symbolic weight burdened on, on them. This case made me wonder, do our human solutions to help animals overcome the obstacles that roads present actually work? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, it, and, you know, I think it sort of depends on what you mean by working. You know, it's, it's uh, I mean, certainly they, uh, they are effective at a certain scale, right? I mean, I, you know, one of the really powerful moments during my reporting was going to Western Washington, you know, driving from Spokane, where I was living at the time, uh, and, you know, and visiting one of these culvert replacement projects where, you know, the Washington State Department of Transportation had, had torn out, you know, this old derelict kind of battered culvert that, you know, was constricting the stream and creating that super soaker you referred to earlier. And, you know, they put in a much bigger culvert that kind of better let the stream flow and allowed salmon to pass through it. And, you know, within a year, I mean, we, we, we were there and there were incredible schools of chum salmon migrating through that culvert. I mean, that new structure had been and had been in place for just a year and it was already allowing fish to pass through them. Uh, so that was, you know, that was incredibly inspiring and, uh, you know, and really wonderful to see. Um, and, you know, clearly a, a demonstration of, a, of a, an effective project. But, you know, when it comes to all of those other problems that, uh, you know, that wildlife and, and salmon in particular are facing, you know, climate change, ocean conditions, you know, stormwater runoff is a, you know, a giant kind of road adjacent problem that we haven't really talked about. Uh, you know, the tire particulates that are, uh, you know, that are flowing into, uh, into water bodies and causing salmon die-offs. Uh, you know, I mean, a, a new culvert is great and helpful, uh, but, you know, it's not going to address all of those manifold problems that, uh, you know, that roads also contribute to. Yeah. What about wildlife crossings? I know that you reported on one that's out past Snoqualmie Pass on I-90. There is a really big one under construction to help cougars uh, cross in the Santa Monica Mountains in the Los Angeles area. How are wildlife crossings changing things for migration patterns and other wildlife activity near highways? Are they effective? Yeah, wildlife crossings are, are really effective. You know, and they come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. Uh, you know, I think I mean anybody who's driven on I ninety has probably noticed that that big Snoqualmie Pass overpass that you that you mentioned, and then I had the opportunity to go up on top of, which was really fun and cool and exciting. But you know that the, so that's kind of the most visible, you know, manifestation of this technology. 
But there are many, many crossings out there that, again, you know, we drive over frequently without noticing. On Stokholmie Pass, there are a number of underpasses as well, you know, including some some pretty inconspicuous ones for salamanders and bull trout and other other species that, uh, again, we don't really think of as being road impacted species, but, you know, are, are certainly uh, affected by by our, our highways. Uh, and, you know, these structures work really well. I mean, there's been lots of research showing that they, you know, tend to reduce roadkill by about 90% when they're paired with roadside fencing that kind of funnels the animals to them, right? Because the animals won't necessarily find the crossings on their own. You know, you need the fences there to kind of direct them. Uh, but yes, there's lots of research showing that, you know, that these these crossings work really well. And, you know, often they, they actually pay for themselves pretty quickly because, again, these, you know, these wildlife vehicle collisions are so dangerous and expensive that, uh, you know, they cost society a lot of money. And, you know, even a, a multi-million dollar wildlife crossing project can pay for itself by preventing those, uh, you know, those those expensive crashes. And, you know, new structures are popping up all the time. You know, that's the Kwame Pass uh, crossing is, you know, certainly state of the art. As, you know, as you mentioned, there's a really gigantic one being built uh, just outside of Los Angeles for uh, a mountain lion population that's kind of hemmed in by freeways. And, you know, at some point, uh, you know, many, many highways in, in Washington that need crossings are going to get them. You know, I-5 is kind of the next frontier now that I-90 has a network of wildlife crossings. You know, conservationists are turning their attention to I-5 uh, as being, you know, one of the big barriers to animals moving east to west in, in Washington state. So, you know, these these structures are, are certainly uh, beneficial and that's good because we're getting a whole lot more of them. You know, something I found interesting is that, yes, roads have largely damaged ecosystems, but there are instances where they provided their own ecosystems and it's not all doom and gloom for wildlife interacting with roads. Can you talk to me about the ways that roads have actually been used to help animals survive? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, roads, for all of the the habitat loss they create, they're a form of habitat in their own right. You know, they're they're a, an ecosystem. Uh, and, you know, a couple examples of that, I mentioned all of those golden eagles and bald eagles, you know, that just kind of line the hillsides in the Metau Valley, you know, waiting for animals to be struck. Well, certainly, you know, roads are uh, a form of sustenance for, uh, you know, for a lot of, a lot of those scavengers, you know, they provide uh, this kind of carcass bounty that, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, lots they're of creep- setting the table. They're se- yeah, exactly. They're 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 setting the table. If you're you know if you're a, a bald eagle, certainly. Uh, and then you know the, the other the other form of kind of road habitat that I write about a lot in the book is you know this notion of roadside uh, vegetation for pollinators. You know wildflowers that sustain monarch butterflies and other species. And that's especially true, uh, you know, in the in the Midwest. You know where so much of the landscape now is basically corn and soy monoculture. And those you know those strips of prairie that border roadsides are some of the last best habitat that's out there uh, for for monarch butterflies and, you know, rusty patch bumblebees and other other pollinators. But, you know, of course, the road is also a dangerous place to live if you're if you're uh, a, a monarch butterfly. And, you know, certainly millions of them are are hit by cars. So that's the, you know, both the, the benefit and the cost of the road. You know, it's it's a source of bounty for some species, but it's, it's also a, a very dangerous place. Thanks for listening to Soundside. By the way, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org.